you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask that you take them and you would turn to Psalm chapter 141. Psalm 141. I want to speak to you for just a few minutes this morning about wisdom for life. Any of you ever need wisdom for life? Are any of you parents? You may need wisdom for life. For those of you that aren't, you're going to need wisdom for life as well. Psalm 141. Let me read it to you. David is speaking when he says, O Lord, I call to you. Come quickly to me. Hear my voice when I call you. Have any of you ever started a day knowing that things are going to be so difficult that you ever started your prayer by saying, Lord Jesus, if you want to come today, today's a good day? (laughs) Have, Have any of you ever been there? So David had those kind of days too. He says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Yet my prayer is ever against the deeds of evildoers. Their rulers will be thrown down from the cliffs, and the wicked will learn that my words were well spoken. They will say, as one plows and breaks up the earth, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of the grave. But my eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. Keep me from the snares that they have laid for me, from traps set by evildoers, and let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by in safety. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, my greatest desire is that there would not be anybody leave here today without having been fed something that would give them the nourishment spiritually that they need. I ask through your spirit that you would lead us and guide us into the truth of your word and that we would truly be able to draw wisdom for life from this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I ask you this question, what protections do you have in your life when you face adversity? Particularly adversity that is caused by another person. Have any of you ever faced situations where you have become anxious because of something somebody else has done to you? If so, then this applies for you today. David was wrestling as he wrote this psalm with some issues that had taken place that was causing him to desperately need wisdom for God. Let me set the stage for you as to what he had been going through. Number one, he was dealing with a family issue. Absalom, his son, was trying to steal the throne from him. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it goes through a list of things that Absalom was doing so that he could steal the hearts of the people. It said that he would get up in the morning and with 50 chariots he would go to the front gate and and he would have men running ahead of him crying out that he was coming and he would get up early and stand by the gate and when people came to the city as if they were coming to his father to uh, plead their case or ask for justice, he would intercept them. And he would tell them and he would ask them, what town are you from? And he would engage them in conversation. When they knelt down before him because they knew he was the son of the king, he would reach over and he'd lift them up and he would kiss them and just doing everything that he could do to win their heart. And he would then tell them, tell me your problems. Tell me what's going on. And as they would begin to outline their case, he would say, oh, 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 if only I were the king. If only I were the king, I would certainly take care of this. But there's nobody here to hear what you have to say. And he began to send secret messengers out to the different villages to speak of himself and build him up highly. And 
It got to the point where the Bible says that he had stolen the hearts of the people from his father. He had even gone so far as to set up a village where he says, as I go in, I need you all to cry, the king is coming, the king is coming. And as he did so, word got back to David that Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people and that he was coming to remove him from the throne and perhaps even kill him. And so David flees, and he flees for his life, and he flees so quickly, the Bible tells us that he left weeping and barefoot. This is the king we're talking about. Betrayed by his own son leaving there not knowing who he could trust, even of his own men that had been around him. Not only was he dealing with a betrayal from his own family that was causing him this issue, he was dealing with Saul, who hated him and wanted him destroyed. In fact, it says that he had come into a place where he knew that Saul was after him, and we read the story in in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, and Saul had been chasing him. David's men had been telling him, God is going to get even with him. And it said that after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert in En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David. You know you're in trouble when the king needs 3,000 men to chase you down. And he came to the sheep's pen along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. That's a beautiful picture. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke when he said to you, I will give the enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed. Or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not even allow him, them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. In the middle of a bad day, in the middle of people hunting him down for things that he did not deserve, David is processing all kinds of feelings and emotions, and it's from this that he writes this 141st Psalm. And in his heart, he doesn't want to return evil for evil to be chained to the past. He doesn't want to become bitter or angry or poisoned. He is in such a strong fight with his own feelings that he prays things like this. Oh, Lord, bring my soul out of prison. Have ever, you ever felt as if your soul is in prison because of everything going on around you? He says, Lord, please hurry up. Rescue me from evil people. Lord, hear my cry. I'm very low. I'm losing all hope. Answer me for my depressions deepen. And why does God record David's prayer in Psalm 141? One reason, so that you and I can gain wisdom for how to live this life. 
wisdom for your life to be healthy, wisdom for your life to be whole and balanced and strong. So there are four wisdom discoveries that we get from this passage. And if you have your bulletin, you can recognize the four points are there and you can jot down some sub-keys as God begins to speak to you from them. The first one is this. The key to my growth is my response to conviction. The key to my growth is my response to conviction. Psalm 141 verse 4 says, Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil to take part in wicked deeds. The King James Version puts it this way. Don't let me drift toward evil or take part in the acts of the wickedness. David understood that we each have a nature and that our nature does not naturally lead us to holy things. Our nature naturally leads us to things that are unholy. And knowing this about himself, his first prayer in this was, God, I need you to help me because I recognize that my growth in you is going to correspond directly to how I respond to your conviction. How you speak to my conscience. And David understands that anytime you resist your conscience, anytime you resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is the moment that you cease growing spiritually. Now, for every one of us that have known the Lord for any length of time, we all recognize what that small, still voice feels like and sounds like in our hearts. There are moments that we're about to be involved in something, and it may even look good from the outside, but somehow there's this little check that comes, and we are told to stop where we are because God is wanting to redirect us in some way. Some of you have gotten really accustomed to running right through the stoplight of the Holy Spirit. You have so desired to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, that the Spirit of God and the, the prompting of His conviction has not become a stop sign to you any longer. And as a result of that, your spiritual life is capped and is probably dying because your growth is directly determined to how you respond to conviction. So David is fighting these feelings and he's tempted to break out in retaliation. It was probably the first thing that came to his mind. And he's been deeply, deeply injured by his son and deeply injured by Saul. He's got a wounded spirit. He's been falsely wronged and suddenly... An opportunity arises to kill the one that has caused him so much problem. He had to feel on one hand like, this is going to be good. Because there's something within the nature of man that always wants to pay back those who have put us in harm's way. And it seems as if, and his advisors that were around him were telling him, this is God's way. This is God's way of making it right. Take advantage of it. But the moment that he gets there, and the moment that he cuts off the piece of robe from Saul, instantly there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that stops him. It says he's grieving. There's a grieving process in his heart. And David had the choice at that moment to walk right through the stop sign of the Holy Spirit and do whatever he wanted to do or listen to what the Spirit was telling him. But David's conscience told him something different than even his advisors. And in that moment, he chose to obey his conscience and spare Saul. Because David understood this, that if I drift toward evil, it will always be, be because my pride is speaking louder than the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to get even with those that hurt me. I want to conquer my anger. And in order to do that, I've got to hear the small voice of God. And if God wants me to forgive those who have offended me and wounded me, then he knows something I do not know. And it will be for my best if I obey. The question for all of us then becomes, how do we respond to the invitation 
and the opportunity to exact revenge on those who have caused us pain and sorrow. How do we respond when our world has been turned upside down because of decisions others have made and the opportunity comes to get back at them? How do we respond? So David prays here, Lord, please don't let me drift toward evil. How many do you know that the winds will always blow you away from the Lord? And he's praying, God, don't let that happen to me. Here's what he understood. Forgiveness is a command, not an option. Forgiveness is a choice, it's not a feeling. Forgiveness is for my benefit, not for the benefit of the offender. Let me repeat that one. Forgiveness is for my benefit, not for the benefit of the offender. And forgiveness is a process, not an event. Bill Kirk is one of my friends, has written a lot of stuff, and I jotted down some of the things that he says. Fact, you are never more like Jesus than when you're in the process of forgiving someone because Jesus is always in the process of forgiving you. Fact, unforgiveness is the poison we drink while we wait for the other person to die. Fact, resentment is allowing somebody you despise to live rent-free in the house of your mind. Fact, living with hurt feelings will never motivate you to make right decisions or right actions. Fact, we dare not let wrong choices of others determine who we become. Fact, when we freely receive God's forgiveness and freely give it, something amazing happens. We remove ourselves from the control of others, and we are released from the anger and the pain that is attached to it, and all of the painful memories God can begin to heal, as well as the offenses and disappointments. And so we have a choice to make. And one of the choices that we make in this is that we understand that the key to my growth is my response to his conviction. Secondly, the key to my choices is my response to my companions. In verse 4, it says, let not my heart. In other words, he's going, I don't need my heart, which we are ordered to guard wisely. Don't let my heart take part in the wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Don't let me eat of their delicacies. At this particular point, I want you to understand that in all of our lives, there's a difference between an acquaintance and a friend. There's a difference between somebody who is an acquaintance and somebody who is a friend. Somebody who is an acquaintance may say something bad about you or critical of you, and it won't bother you at all because what they think of you just doesn't matter. But a friend, a friend has the ability to wound. A friend has the ability to make you think. The difference is... And we need to be very careful who we allow within our lives to become so close to us that their opinion of us has the ability to influence us. Now, I know we're starting school this week, and parents, I pray for you that as you pray for your children that this school year will be filled with friends that will be beneficial to them and not friends that will influence them away from their faith. This is the way that we need to pray for one another because a companion will influence you. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be yoked or teamed up with unbelievers. I had a friend a number of years ago that had had a business, and his business was falling apart before his very eyes. And I remember asking him as he was watching this, I said, Can you think back to one decision that was made that has led you to this place where this business is falling apart? And he said, Yep, I can tell you exactly where it was. It was the day that I made an equal partner of an acquaintance who was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And I made that decision because it made financial sense and not spiritual sense. And he says, and I'm suffering today as a result of it. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says this, Bad company corrupts good character. And so there are two characteristics that, that cause people to live for the approval of others. Number one is deception. It blinds us to the fact that if you are around those with bad company, you will suffer the same consequences they do. I could tell you story after story of people who have come into my office and sat down that were in the middle of things that they never saw coming. And when I asked them why, it was because I made somebody a close friend who I should never have done. And as a result of it, I'm suffering the consequences because I was too close to them when their evil deeds caught up with them. The other reason that we face these things is because we're insecure. Some of you are involved in friendships that are so insecure that you don't feel that you could ever be honest with your friend as to what's going on. Because if I'm honest with them about some things that I see within their life or they're honest with me, it may end our friendship. We're so insecure in that. But there is an aspect of having friends that are close to you that brings you to a place of being able to speak the truth in honesty with one another. I'm so thankful that I've got people in my life that if there are symptoms that are beginning to show up in my life that are unhealthy, that they will confront me because they love me. And as a result of that, I love them enough to give them permission to speak into my life and say, I am seeing something in you, Doug, that just doesn't seem like you, and it certainly doesn't seem like God. And I've been given that same freedom in their life as well. And as a result of that, if your friendships are not such that they can speak honestly to you and you can speak honestly to them, then your friendship is way too shallow and it may be too insecure to deal with that. And God says, you need these kinds of people in your life. Tim Keller says, if you love a person so selfishly that you cannot risk their anger when you tell them the truth and what they need to hear or what they need to speak to you, then you don't really have friendship. So remember this about approval. When we live to please people, we lose ourselves and we drift away from God. When we live for people's approval, we cannot live to please God. And to the degree that we live to please God above man, to that same degree, we will not be shaken by the disapproval or the rejection of people because we know God is leading us. So don't be overly obsessed with what other people think about you. And if they are your friend and they speak to you the truth and love, then receive it. But remember, the key to my choices is my response to my companions. Thirdly in this, the key to my potential is my response to correction. The key to my potential is my response to correction. David writes, let the righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. There's a really, really fascinating Hebrew word that is here, and it's, it's interpreted kindness to us, but it's, it's so much deeper than what we can put it in English. It, it really is a word that, that means an act of kindness. It, it means somebody acting on my behalf out of faithful love, somebody giving me medicine that I desperately need, somebody ministering to me, an act that proves by their action that they love me. And David goes on to say, these kind of actions... People that strike me, in other words, interrupt my life blatantly so that I can recognize where I am and bring some correction to my life. I have got to learn to love them for that. But here's where we run into a problem in the world in which we live. So many times today people think that correction is because somebody is disrespecting them. And it's exactly the opposite. Have you ever met anybody that doesn't know how to take a compliment? Have you ever met anybody that doesn't know how to take correction? We are living in a nation and in a society today 
that if you were to talk to somebody and to bring correction into their life, you might just very well hear them look at you and say, until you reach perfection, there's nothing that you can tell me about how to live my life. Another, who in the world do you think you are to bring correction to me? You're disrespecting me. You're judging me. Keep your thoughts to yourself. And David, recognizing this about human nature, says this. I love this in verse 3. He says, God, you need to set a guard over my mouth. Lord, not just a guard over my mouth, but you need to watch my lips. In other words, Lord, I am so prone to just striking back the moment somebody wants to bring correction to my life. The first thoughts that come to my mind are not, oh, how holy are you that you would do this for me. The first thought is, you come close enough and I'll bust you right in the face. That was David's nature. He's a warrior. But in the hurt that he'd been going through, he recognized, Lord, there's a lot of things that run through my mind that should never come out my mouth. And so I need divine help that you would guard my mouth and guard my lips so that in the moment when somebody loves me enough to bring correction to my life, I do not say what I think, but I stand there and receive it. So the question is for us, recognizing that every one of us have blind spots in our life. Every one of us have blind spots. How do you respond when somebody points those out to you? Do you receive it well when people love you enough to correct you? Or do you just not see it correctly? And do you begin to push them off and say, you know what, if that's the way you think of me, then I don't want you as a friend, and and begin to shove them away, because if so, you will live an isolated life and an uncorrectable life, and your spiritual life will cease to grow. Why do people resent correction and accountability? Because our egos are really fragile, and we can't handle it. Because we live in a day and age where people won't tolerate it. Because individualism is the spirit of the age. Because the flesh wants to look good and make a good impression. And because people are more concerned about their pride than they are about their character. Plato said, a life which is unexamined is not worth living. Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, only a fool knows everything. He didn't say that it's not painful to the extent to be corrected. He said the results are worth the pain. And David learned this. The fourth key that came out of this is the key to my character is my response to my cautions. Verse 9, he says, keep me from the snares they have laid for me, from the traps set by evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Now, I recognize that David, one of the things I love about David is that he, he prays what he thinks. And so not everything David said comes across as just really Christian thought. I mean, he's in the middle of God. I need you to guard my heart, guard my lips. And Lord, while we're at it, if you would just wipe out all those evildoers. If you would just let them get, I'll get caught in their own traps and, and just be wounded for, you know, oh, Lord, well, I bring back my thoughts, oh, God, to you, you know. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely and just wave at them. Charles Spurgeon said this about this passage. Grace does not work toward making us wish otherwise concerning the enemies of holy men. Do we not all wish the innocent to be delivered and the guilty to reap the result of their own malice? Of course we do. We're just men. There can be no wrong in desiring that to happen. In other words, 
there is this mindset that is uniquely human, that we desire that God would be the God and that he would make everything right while we can still see it. I want to see them hurt. I want to see them squirm. I want to see as I'm walking by them caught in their own traps, Lord. Spurgeon said, it's okay to think that, but it's not okay to act on that. So David mentions three things that he says we need to be cautious of in our life. Number one, snares. Snares are things that we see, traps that we can see on our own. After the first service this morning, an individual came up to me and asked me if I had ever heard of an individual uh, by the name of Portia Nelson. She said, Portia wrote a very small five-chapter verse book about her life, and she says, here is my autobiography. It says this, chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it, and I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there, and I still fall in. Now it's a habit. My eyes are opened. I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I choose to walk down a different street. Some of you have lived spiritual lives that go from the highs of the mountaintop to the lows of the valley, and your life is just like a roller coaster. You're constantly high or low, high or low. And part of the reason for that is because you have walked down the same sidewalk and seen the same hole, and you have fallen in it again and again and again. At some point, the wisdom of the Lord says that if you want to get out of the habits that you're in, choose a different road, walk a different path. There are snares that you can see, and David says that in wisdom for us, oh God, help me to see them and avoid them so that they don't capture me anymore. He goes on to say that in his prayer, there's some traps. He goes, keep me from the traps. Now, traps are things that are hidden. Traps are things that the enemy sets for you, hoping that you won't see them until you fall in. This is where the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life makes us aware of things that we can't see and that we don't know. And sometimes we're walking down a path and we feel the door close and we don't know why. And we're saying, Lord, this makes perfect sense to me to be able to go this way. I don't know why I'm feeling hindered to this way. It's because there's traps on the other side. He sees that you do not. And if we will learn to yield to the prompting of his spirit that when a door is closed, even if you wanted to go that way, it's because he knows something that's going to save your life. And David says, Lord, help me and lead me in the place where the traps are hidden. And then he thirdly he prays and says, Lord, help me not to be swept up in the nets. In other words, Lord, help my steps to be so guarded that in those things that catch lots of people in them, I pray that you would give me the wisdom to know where I need to go and what I need to do so that I am not swept up in the nets of things that others get caught up in. John 10.10 10 tells us the thief will come only to steal and to kill and destroy. And So David begins to ask God to reveal a pathway for me to keep me from the things that will hinder or destroy your work in my life. That is a great prayer for all of us to pray. Lord, lead me in the areas that will be safe. 
And then verse 80 says this, but my eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. Any of us that have ever been in a situation where we are bobbing in the wake of somebody else's decision understand that in those moments it's hard to keep our eyes focused on God. So easy is it for us to begin to turn our eyes to the circumstances around us. But David says that I'm fixing my eyes on you. In other words, I want you to know, God, that regardless of what's going on around me, I'm watching you because you are my leader, you are my guide, and if my eyes are on you, then I will know the safe path to take as you lead me and you guide me. We must avoid the mistake of occasionally glancing at where God is. We must avoid the mistake, especially in times when we are personally wounded, of thinking that he doesn't care. We cannot afford a single day without integrating his word into our life or conversing with him in prayer. And Spurgeon also noted here that David gave his eyes to God. Some of you today need to give your eyes to God. I was thinking about that as we dedicated the baby a week or so ago. Lord, that you would guide and protect this child. I think every one of us need to de dedicate our eyes to God. That, Lord, what I see, may you have the ability to redirect my gaze to turn my face where it needs to be so that rather than focusing on the wound, I focus on the healer. He says, in you I take refuge or in you is my complete trust. Worship team, if you'd please prepare yourself to come. Cindy and I, a couple of years ago, were on a beach and while we were vacationing near the ocean, I was watching a father and, and a little girl that was probably just old enough to start going into the ocean with her dad hanging onto her hand. And it was not a particularly rough day, but as they were standing there, they had turned their backs for a moment, and when they did, there was a wave that was larger than the rest of them that came from the back and hit him. And, you know, for the father, it just caught him about mid-calf, but for that little girl, it wiped her out. I mean, all we saw was, was her feet come out of the water, and her dad's arm kind of twisted around, and, and finally he just grabs his arm and lifts her straight out of the water. And in that moment, I'm watching all of this take place. She instantly looks at him, and you can tell it's one of those moments where his reaction is going to determine her reaction. And as he's holding her in the air by one arm, she's spitting water out, and she looks at him, and he starts laughing. And she starts laughing. And she says, let's do that again. There are moments in our life when we are caught by unexpected waves that just wipe us out. But in those moments, aren't you glad to know that you've got the hand of the Savior who's keeping you in all of that? And in that moment when you feel I'm about to drown, He lifts you out of the water and He's looking at your eyes and He laughs with you. And you can start to laugh with Him knowing that He's got all things in His hands. And that the key to your growth is the way that you will respond. The key to your growth is your response to conviction. The key to your choices is your response to companions. The key to your potential is your response to correction. And the key to your character is your response to caution.